Welcome to Designer's Drink, the podcast where I sit down with a fellow designer over drinks and discuss inspiration, the creative process, and our definitions of success. I'm your host, Sam Fagan, founder of Design It Please, and here with me today is the one and only Lee Brenner. <laughs> Hello. Hey, yes, Lee. it's a good thing there's only one of me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, tell me a little about yourself, please. Uh, okay. Start wherever you want. All right. I'm kind of a designer, I guess. Uh, I started out as a developer. Okay. Um, now my degree is in computer science, but uh, growing up, I wanted to be a comic book artist. Mm. And like some of my earliest memories are of drawing. Uh, my dad was a welder, so he had just tons of rusting pieces of iron and machinery. So I would just go find one and, you know, start drawing on it. Awesome. Did <laughs> uh, he appreciate that or did you get scolded uh, for that? Uh, he never said anything, <laughs> but I would usually try to hide. I would go try to find a, a surreptitious place to go do it. So I don't, and I'm sure it probably the rain washed it off before he got around to, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that's to say that I, I got, I had a degree or got a degree in computer science and, Started out as a developer, but I was kind of, I always was kind of like an artist, I think, by nature. And when I was first going to school, uh, I was doing like a, a fine arts degree, and then I switched over to like a graphic design um, program. Uh, then dropped out for a while and kind of did some did my own thing. But then eventually, when I went back to school, I I got a degree in computer science and um, started out in web development, but was just not. I just was not happy. Like it was not fulfilled. Yeah. yeah. And, um, knew that I re like, I just was missing that creative side of myself. Mm -hmm. And I like one of the things that I say, I, like if I'm not taking care of that creative side of myself, I always get what I call like creative constipation. Mm -hmm. Like I just feel constipated, but like in my brain, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I guess it's kind of gross maybe, but anyway, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, that's just like, that's how I know I'm not really taking care of myself. But anyway, that's how I ended up at Frog Design. Um, because obviously they were a creative first agency and they, they were just sort of started getting into like the technology and implementation side. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of like how I got my foot in the door of like what I consider my, my current career. And where are you working now? So I am freelancing now. Even though I say I'm freelancing, I've had the same client for like a year and a half now um, just because it's been a, a great um, working relationship and learning opportunity. Nice. What are we drinking today? Oh, right. Okay. So we are having a margarita. I realized that um, this probably isn't the best season for a margarita. Like really you want to be sitting outside, outside and yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's actually the weather's pretty good for this. Um, I, I decided on margarita because the way I make it, it's just like three ingredients, lime, simple syrup, and tequila. But what I really like is when you get those three ratios right, like it's like, it just turns it into like this magical cocktail, you know, that it just, it's just something transcendent about those three simple things coming together. And normally, I will say normally I get um, Herradura silver as the tequila because it's kind of peppery. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have that when I went to buy the ingredients this weekend. Boo. So, yeah. We're trying a new one. It's called 
Avion, I think. And so the getting the ratios is always tricky because it depends on the flavor of the tequila and the quality of the limes that you have, like whether or not they're in season. So hopefully this this version is all right. I think it's delicious. Okay, good. <laughs> what turned you on to margaritas? Um, I don't. When did you experience this magical margarita? Uh, I think it was. I'd never really liked margaritas like when I get them out in the world right. because usually out of they're the just, machine. it's just like sugar. Yeah. They're not <laughs> mostly ice. Yeah. Um, I think maybe I just like when I started getting into sort of like cocktails and making them at home and one day we just decided, Oh, let's just do a margarita. And I was like looking at ingredients and like a lot of times they have a control control. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't know how to say yeah, that, control. but it's like kind of like, got an orange flavor to it. Yep. And I was like, no, that's, that's not, doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. And I was thought, well, let's just try just these three basic ingredients and see what happens. And I think I just happened to get the ratio right. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is like magic. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Angels singing. The, the clouds opened up and. <laughs> <laughs> this is the source of my creativity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just drunk. <laughs> <laughs> totally. We're yeah. not drunk yet. Don't worry. <laughs> Considering that you started drawing on the pavement with chalk rocks at an early age, is that your first memory of creativity in your life? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. And then how did your creative expression develop? Were your parents creative? You know, not, no, not really. Um, I think, I think I found out at like a later age that my dad at one point was somewhat creative like I think someone showed me like some sketchbooks that he had when he was a teenager or something Mm -hmm. and being like oh wow like those are pretty good so Mm -hmm. I think maybe it was in my DNA I think at that point like no one was really openly encouraging me or buying me pencils or anything like that I would just find a way to make marks on things and I think growing up on the farm out in the middle of nowhere and being poor like you're sort of forced to come up with your own forms of entertainment like we grew up in with all this land so like it was just it was like I had an entire universe to go play in as long as I could just dream it up and create it so when did creativity become a thing that you actually considered might be a viable life choice for you in elementary school I I had a really good friend that got me into comic books and for the longest time I thought man I'm I'm just going to be like a comic book artist I think that was sort of what made me think, well, I'm pretty good at this. Maybe I'll just do this when I go to college. Mm -hmm. I don't think I realized, I started thinking about it in terms of viability until having my daughter was what sort of was like the impetus for me to get my act together and to go back to school. And at that point, I was thinking about, man, how, like, what's the best industry for me to go into? At that point, I was really motivated to do something. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what made me have a successful experience because I went to, to school and I was really a, applying myself and I found out that I really thought math was interesting. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden I found out, Oh wow, like biology is interesting and physics is interesting. And then I landed on computer science because I realized the aspect of like writing code was very creative. Like it was almost like an artistic form of expression. 
And I, I guess that just kind of stuck. But at that point, see, I wasn't even thinking about art. Right. Really, it wasn't in the forefront of my brain. Right. And it wasn't until I'd been doing writing code for a while that I realized like that was not really like the true thing that I wanted to do. My dad was like a total, totally self-sufficient, sort of like live off the land, do everything yourself guy. We had, you know, a garden where we grew vegetables. We had an orchard where we had fruit. We wow. had all the animals that we would, you know, either use for milk or for like we had rabbits that we would kill to eat. And like every, it was basically everything. Mm-hmm. And he was always, you know, trying and bringing new animals and new stuff in for us to do. So That's cool. Yeah. Uh, at the time, I absolutely hated it but I certainly appreciate it now Mm -hmm. (laughs) was the farmhouse one of those big white no it was you see in the movies no not at all it was a little rickety just box you know like I said we were we were super poor and my dad was constantly tinkering on things of course and so I I know for like there were a couple years when one he decided he was I think he decided he was going to redo the siding on the back side of the house so but he never got around to finishing it so for like a good year and a half one part of my wall was basically just a blanket covering up the the elements of the <laughs> outside <laughs> like you know the wind would blow and you would see my wall would just be kind of like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. good thing there's not a lot of inclement weather yeah. up there <laughs> well that's well you know back then it would get super cold like yeah. it would even snow here oh. Um, and definitely ice over and stuff. It got, you would, you would be going to sleep and you could see your breath. Wow. It was, it would get pretty cold back then. Hmm. And you were really into comic books. Yeah, totally. Was your room decorated with posters and. No, no, actually no. I, I really liked comic books. I didn't have a whole lot of them. Um, well, man, this is going to get complicated. So that was. That's my dad's house. My, my mom and my dad split up pretty early on. My mom lived actually in Lorena proper. And so like, I kind of, it's weird. I kind of had nothing at my dad's house, but I had everything. And then at my mom's house, I had material things, but it was like very suburban and like where you think you have things, but you really don't. Um, Oh man, that got totally philosophical without, (laughs) didn't intend to say that. But anyway, so at her house, I did have my room like totally, you know, like had posters and, you know, everything up on the walls. Like I, my goal was to cover my wall with, with crap so that you wouldn't see the, the actual wall. So right. anyway, mm-hmm. did you do hand, hand art, hand drawn art at that point? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much what, and that's almost 90% of what I do now when I, when I draw is like pen, pencil markers. Yeah. But back then it was basically pencils. Me and my friend, we would just stay up all night long inventing superheroes and superhero groups and stuff like that yeah (laughs) you were really into comics yeah yeah definitely what was the first comic you ever owned uh it would have had to have been x-men like that was the one that my friend introduced me to and yeah i was totally into it and what is it about the comic book form that you that drew you to it ultimately i think it's the artwork it's sort of realistic but it's also very like it could be anything like it's very imaginative and it can look you know anything can happen so I think it was just like seeing that and being rendered you know Mm -hmm. which I really liked 
And there are some, like I had some artists that were my favorite artists that I just loved the way their lines looked, you know, loved the way that they drew the human form mm. in motion. Mm -hmm. um, that's really what I liked. And I think as a layer on top of that, like the really interesting superhero characters and like the costume design and the colors and stuff was really cool. And then maybe a layer on top of that is just the physicality of having that, that comic book in your hand and the, you know, the outer cover is sort of glossy and then you've got like the newsprint quality on the inside. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it's a very rich experience across the board. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you been a freelancer? Uh, I have been freelancing for, it's been about like four or five years now, I think, four years. I had started up my company, Big Big Bomb. We were sort of like a mobile, a mobile consultancy. And we ended up creating Hayride as a separate startup. And Hayride is a ride sharing service. Um, Still? Uh, no, not anymore. Okay. But th so this was back before, like Uber was around and Lyft was around, but they were not it really wasn't, it, they weren't in Austin or there was nothing in Austin. There was okay. pedicab. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but we had, uh, we had a guy um, who was working above us come down one day to ask if he could borrow some Wi-Fi while they were waiting to get their Wi-Fi installed. Oh no. <laughs> and he, every now and then he would just come down and hang out. And then one day he was like, Hey, I got a proposition for you. I have this idea to come up with a ride sharing service because you know, Austin is like, is, is a very social town like there there's always stuff going on but there's not enough transportation for people and i think it's really important that people should be able to like go out to a concert or go out to a club and not have to be put in a position where they might have to drive drunk mm -hmm. so what if we just have like this this service where you know anyone can sign up to be a driver and they can turn on their turn on their like availability sign whenever they want and pick up people and take them home and he was like, let's just do it. I'll, you know, I'll give us all equal ownership in the startup and let's just, you know, let's do it. So Hayride was acquired. And um, because Hayride was also our company, half of our company went to go work for the company that acquired Hayride. But not you? No, I, I yeah, not me. Um, it wasn't going to be a good fit for me. And I was in San Francisco and I wasn't really in a place where I could move to San Francisco so I stayed here in Austin. For all intents and purposes, I was freelancing at that point. The company was just me. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to go back to freelancing and working with clients until, until something else feels more right or until you know, I feel like I need to make a change. What is your vision for your business? Uh, you know, it's funny that you asked that because I've, I've been freelancing for a while, but, and I'm actually I'm ready to like, join a company now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I miss working with people yeah with a team it's it's super hard for me to just be on my own and not like have a group of peers or have people that are like my equals that I can bounce ideas off of and that can challenge me and make me better mm -hmm. like it's definitely hard to um to just kind of be that one person like I already like set myself up in a different difficult place because I say I'm not totally a designer and by virtue of that fact I'm not totally a developer Sometimes I, f I feel like it's really presumptuous of me to try to do all those things. Um, I do it because I love it and mm -hmm. I love the challenge, but it, I also recognize at the same time, there's only so many hours in the day. There's only so many 
that means you only have so much time you can s spend on those various crafts. So it's hard to, unless you just don't sleep or something, it's hard to like practice all of those crafts every single day. And it's hard to line up clients that give you the opportunity to, to practice all of those crafts and to hone. And on top of that, like being part of communities and staying on top of like the latest trends, like it's hard to just keep yeah. all those things in motion while you're still trying to work with clients. Mm -hmm. um, Why don't you just build a team? Uh, that's a good question, <laughs> which I haven't really thought about. I think, I think because, I, man, you just totally stumped me with that. <laughs> uh, I guess because, I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe you should. You totally stumped me on that. <laughs> I had just had not, I had been thinking, okay, I'm freelancing. And now I know I want to work with people. So I want to go work with a company. I will say that, okay, building a team, that means that I have to convince people to work with me. I don't know if that would be hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't. It's one of the things. I mean, maybe I haven't worked I, with you, but yeah. it's one of the things <laughs> you that seem I struggle like a with. Nice person. <laughs> yeah, but I, sometimes I'm. I don't know. I'm like, who am I? Like, what? What do I know? You know, how that's am I going to convince of, somebody? Uh, that's the kind of person but, I want to work with. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I had not considered that perspective. And it, it is a lot of work. It's very challenging to have to to have a team and to figure out some sort of structure for that. Like I, it, it's a. It is. It does weigh on your mind to to think. Okay, we have to have a pipeline, and like if I have an employee, they're they rely on me to pay them, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and that's kind of a scary position to be in. Even though, yeah. think luckily, I've never been. We've we never were in a position where we couldn't pay people what we wanted to pay them or what we thought they they deserve to be paid. But I got to think that if it's some there's somewhere down the line you have to deal with that that problem, and that's kind of scary to think about, but. I don't know, maybe there's like an, you could form some sort of collective or something. I See, don't know. See, <laughs> that's what I'm interested in these days, this collective idea. Mm -hmm. People from various backgrounds and various strengths coming together for projects. Yeah, yeah. Lending their uh, expertise and then moving on to work on another project. Yeah. I, so have you had any experience with that? Not yet. No, yeah. I've only read articles. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny that you say that because it's something that was one of the models that we were t kicking around back when we had Big Big Bomb, which was, you know, what, five or six years ago. Um, is that why you have a bomb on your arm? That it is. It's okay. one of it's that that's the logo. That's our logo. It, this is sort of like a timeline of like significant events in my life. But yeah, that's cool. Formation of a company. I felt like that was pretty a good one to put on my skin. And it, um, anyway, that, that idea of like a collective was one of the, that was like an idea that was around back then. There were, it was us and there were several other, even like uh, Anthony Armendariz with Argyle. Um, we were talking about that kind of model. Like, would it be possible for us to, like, how do you structure something so that you can have like a group of experts and they can kind of come together on projects as needed. Mm -hmm. And would it would they make like a commission off of something? Would they, how would we pay that? How would we keep them interested in being a part of the collective? Mm -hmm. But there were there were I think three or four different entities, companies, or people that 
we were all trying to figure that out at the time, but it never, we never acted upon it. Well, obviously like having Hayride and then the dissolution of the company kind of changed everything. But yeah. Well, it's interesting it's to hear that that's consider. still a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes sense. And if you want to, if out of the collective, you meet this person or this person or this person who you just idealistically um, and skill wise, you mesh mm-hmm. and then you want to form something long term, do it. Yeah. But yeah. the flexibility of, of being able to not work and not be the main person, like mm-hmm. the one person doing everything. Um, and also realizing that you don't have the responsibility for all these people. Yeah. Um, that you're, we're each responsible for ourselves. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, I certainly, it's a great idea. The figuring out the practicalities of like, how do you bring work in mm-hmm. and how do you manage the teams and stuff like that would be one to figure out. But I, I don't know, man, maybe yeah. you just opened up a, <laughs> a Pandora's box that had been closed. <laughs> we'll talk about this later. <laughs> audience hasn't been introduced to uh the name of your company yet or what exactly it is that you do (laughs) can you give a brief Uh, summary yes my company name is me it's just me my focus is on mobile primary is is on ios i'm not definitely not like a, a web developer i'm a ios developer when it comes to writing code yeah i've been doing a lot of usability testing and like learning about that whole process, which is, I think, really fascinating. Um, that and, like, interaction design has been a big focus lately. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, it well. really is. I, I know in the past I've looked at it as being, like, very tedious, but, man, there is a time and place for usability testing. And when you're dealing with a large scale, with a product that has a large audience, I mean, it's you've got to know the impact of the change that you're going to place on them. You can't just do it haphazardly. What tools do you use for usability testing? So since it's all mobile, um, it was kind of like a learning process just to figure out how... How to do it. How to do it. Um, There are services out there and they can be really expensive. Like Usability Hub? uh, I I can't remember the ones that we researched, but we ended up doing a combination of um, Validately is like sort of like the service that that gets the users together for you and provides the framework for them to do the okay. testing. And then click through prototypes with um uh what is this envision? Yes, envision. Okay. Yeah. So I I I would do like you know generate the screens as just like basically wireframes and mm-hmm. then sew them together in envision. And then you can plug that stuff into the Validately system. Oh, okay. And they generate all the tests and go find the users for you. Um, so when you were first learning about usability and interaction design, what resources did you use to, to learn? What books? So Dan Safford, Designing for Interaction. The book apart, they have lots of books that are good. 
um, that I've referred to. And then just, yeah, doing lots of research. Like the, what is it? The Nielsen group has tons of, um, resources for that kind of stuff. I've dipped my toe into it over the course of my career. Like we did some usability studies and we're figuring out like UX processes at frog as a developer. It was easy for me to see how the design assets or the design, uh, artifacts that I got, it, it was easy for me to see how the interaction design or the, the, the flows could be made better so that that made that process a little bit more smooth. And then like when we were doing Hayride, we did, you know, usability studies and stuff. So it's, I've, you know, had exposure to it, but have not had to do it on such a formalized scale as mm -hmm. with my current client. Yeah, yeah. Like you didn't sell it as a service. Right. Right. I think that's one of the things I like about this industry is you can just decide to do something. And if you figure it out, like good for you, can you. make it happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. If you were to describe yourself in one word, what would that be? But it's connected to your calling and what you feel like you're here for and what you're passionate about and all of that is wrapped into this one word. Oh my God. It's, you know what? It's so funny that you asked me that the, the word would be plus. I, I don't know. That's so strange. I have literally, I thought about this like last month. I don't know what I was thinking about, but I came up with this idea of what the plus sign means. Like the plus symbol mm -hmm. is like addition. It's like adding or it's like moving. It's like, forward movement yeah. growth mm -hmm. and I don't know I was thinking about how the way that we respond to like ourselves into the world you can you can be like a minus mm. or you can be a plus mm -hmm. and I think for a long time like I felt very pessimistic like I think I was a very negative person mm. and eventually I I realized man I am tired of being a miserable person like I'm choosing this like mm. I'm choosing to be negative mm. and that's totally on me mm -hmm. and I don't like I don't like it like this is just miserable and I started making like a conscious effort to to go the opposite direction and to like it is a conscious decision you, you choose to be happy um, regardless of the situation and I so I don't know I can't remember why I was thinking about this but I landed on this like all encompassing encompassing is that encompassing? Word? Yeah, encompassing. <laughs> Photography. Yeah, I always get the words wrong. Syllable. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, like the plus, like that was, that's the word plus. Interesting. Yeah, for sure. It's always more. Like you always have the opportunity to add or to create more or to put things together rather than to like tear them apart yeah. or go dark. Hmm. Maybe that should be the name of your company. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you're just... That's a good idea. <laughs> plus design. <laughs> Lee plus. <laughs> that would be a really good collective name, actually. That's like a really it good really, vision. Actually it is. A really yeah. good vision for a collective. You're right. I'm, I'm you're, I can't argue with that. <laughs> what book should every designer read? Um so having listened to your previous episodes, I knew this was coming. <laughs> I think it's important. It's a, it's a great question. 
the first one that immediately popped into my mind was start with why. Um, and it's not, it's not like a designer book per se, mm-hmm. but the, like the message of it is really important. And it, I think it's like universe, universally applicable. And what is that message? Um, knowing why you're doing something. So like the, the examples he uses in the book are more about why you have a product or why you're running a business. Um, like money is not the why that's usually like the outcome and that his argument is like, it's very clear to customers if you don't know why you're doing something like Mm -hmm. most people can describe how they're doing it. Um, but they can't talk about what they're doing, but they don't know why they're doing it. And they're like all of these, um, unintentional side effects that, that play out if you don't know why you're doing something like what, uh, I think one of the interesting ones that he has in the book is he talks about, um, the messaging in, in advertising, like, like you're, you, you find yourself resorting to, um, like trying to trick the customer to engage with you Mm. or resorting to like kind of bait and switch tactics Mm -hmm. because your product offering is, is hollow Mm. and, like and his his argument is like people implicitly pick up on that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. If there's not a solid why, um, the customer's going to know it, and they're going to they're you're going to be forced to do duplicitous or disingenuous engagement with them, and and they'll know that. So I I completely agree with start with why he is in my like philosophy zone. Um, and I want to be an authentic, genuine person, so I gravitate to this. But I really feel like the evidence is there that the trickery works. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it does. And I, I'm pretty sure, and it's been a while since I've read the book, but I do think that he acknowledges that it's that's a viable option. Like, you can do that. And, that, and I think, really, that speaks to his message, which is his argument is know why you're doing something. Perfectly viable to not even ever consider that question. You may just be like, I just want to make some money. And that's fine. But depending on your value system, you're going to get different. Like, it's, I guess it really is based on your value system. Mm-hmm. Like, if all you care about is making money, then yeah, you're going to do whatever it takes to get a customer. And it doesn't matter what happens to them after you get from them what you want. But not everyone, I certainly don't operate that way. And I, I, I you know, I, I would never want to treat another human being that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but okay, so here's the here's the nuance to this question, in which that's probably a perfect segue. That was the book that I had in mind for saying, but I think it was like just earlier today. I was like, that's not the book that I want to recommend because of everything that's been going on. Um, so the book that I'm recommending. <laughs> is called uh, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. Now, this is like kind of like a self-help book, which I hate self-help books. <laughs> I think it's ridiculous. But this book has, I can actually say, has literally actually helped myself. Like, it's a great book. And the reason I would recommend it on this podcast in terms of design is because it's another, like, universal. You can apply this universal to all issues whether it's yourself or a client or a project like so the the core of the book is like um it's a mixture of cognitive behavioral 
ideas and sort of like Eastern meditative or almost like Buddhist cones or, or, or thought experiments. Mm-hmm. The thing I like about the book is that like with most self-help, it's like these really um, ethereal, almost like gossamer ideas. Like you read this idea and it's a good idea, but you do nothing with it and it just sort of dissipates into the universe. Mm-hmm. And it's not really actionable. Like you don't really change yourself. But this book because it's like a workbook it has actionable the reason this is unlike any other previous self-help book that i've read because it sort of uses like the the scientific method approach like it's very every step is well stated it has you do act you know physical actionable things like there's an actual concrete idea there's a concrete thing that you do and there's a concrete way to measure it so it really is based on like having a particular outcome and observing that outcome. And the, the thought experiments and the questions that it asks you are just really good questions. Can you give us an example? Uh, so, well, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. One example is it's more of like a Buddhist meditative technique mm-hmm. that they have you try, which is the idea of like where they're teaching you how to, um, like one of the core tenets is, you are not your body, you are not your emotions, you are not your thoughts. All of those things are part of you, but you are bigger than those things. So how has this helped you in your design career? Uh, One way it helps me is, I I think I mentioned like when I feel stuck on something, for me, like that's always an indicator that I need to go up one level in abstraction of problem solving because I'm, I'm I'm too close to the ground here and I'm I'm stuck. But if I can get to a higher perspective, I can see the problem from a different angle mm-hmm. and pick out the I'm stuck on one variable when I'm down here. But now I can come up and see, oh, there's four variables and now I can use it like a algebraic equation. I can solve for the thing that I'm stuck on by using the other variables as a part of the equation instead of just a considering that one variable that I'm stuck on. So how do you actually get above it? Is uh, it just a mental shift? It, it's definitely practice. It's just practice and experience. Like being aware of a technique and then just putting it to use over and over again. And also paying attention to your body, like your body cues, like the physical things that you experience when you're stuck when you're feeling anxious when you're feeling frustrated when you're feeling angry or when you're feeling happy like Mm -hmm. paying attention to the connection of how your body responds to stressors whether they're positive or negative is like like that's critical like you really need to go down to that level and it it takes a long time because you have to you're not used to doing those things it takes a while because you have to slow yourself down and you have to slow your mind down to pay attention to these things that it usually wants to just gloss over. I would be remiss if we didn't talk about the election. Okay. In a specific way. Okay. Technology, bringing people together, technology coming between people and evidently technology (laughs) 
misforecasting what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, I well, I have thought, man, maybe I should quit doing technology altogether and like go get a degree and like become a therapist. <laughs> like, man, like we just really need to help each other right now. Like, maybe I'm just not like I'm not doing anything that truly helps other people. Like, maybe I just need to go do that. Um, but that's really that's probably not a good answer to like how do we <laughs> enable technology. Um, it's a very honest answer, <laughs> but I think, yeah, at my core, that's probably what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm currently reading a book called, um, weapons of math destruction. And, uh, that book is about like the pitfalls of big data and system modeling mm. and applying mathematical models to human behavior and human understanding. And it kind of speaks to exactly like this idea of like how technology fails us, um, I think at the end of the day, it always comes back to the human factor, mm-hmm. which is we're all fallible humans. So like the, the people running the models and making the predictions can't help but interject their own agendas or their own biases into the, the model that they're using. Mm-hmm. And tech, like ultimately technology is, is just a thing. It's a tool that has no inherent sense of morality. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's scary for me to think about how technology, like the internet, when the internet came out, it was like this great equalizer, this great Mm -hmm. savior for humanity, like finally free information exchange. Um, But because of the way things have changed over the past decade or whatever, like even this idea that the internet is this free place, it's just not true anymore. Mm -hmm. And like it's a known fact now that like everything we do gets cataloged and monitored by a government agency and or by Google who wants to sell ads. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like everything about us is known and even the internet itself as a tool is, is like all voices are amplified now, not just positive messages, but also messages that we don't agree with and messages that are just downright destructive um and i think we're all still like struggling to to figure out how to make sense of all that like what's okay and what's not okay and Mm -hmm. how do we even control that like what who makes that decision Mm -hmm. and and i think that's kind of indicative to the way this election played out the way it is or way it has and maybe our misunderstanding of the different groups involved and the the way that we've maybe only exposed ourselves to to the groups that make sense to us like as far reaching as technology is it seems like it's helped us to become more insular in ways yeah i think if anything comes out of this election cycle <laughs> at least for me it's the echo chamberness that facebook and twitter mm. have created yeah um, which I don't think we really understood until this election. And, you know, I'm not sure all of the reasons why they put, they changed their algorithms, but they changed their algorithms, mm-hmm. both of them, in the past year. And I think it was probably based on 
ad revenue or something to do with ads. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever. And I, I think that we've seen that it has created this, these bubbles, these dangerous bubbles. Um, and I don't know where it's going to go from here. Yeah. But I think something has to change. Yeah. Let's dream about the plus side of this. So how do we, how do we social media plus personal interaction? What do we need to create to get it to the next step where it actually creates relationships and not just, I mean, because in some cases it does, Mm -hmm. like you hear about people actually forming bonds on Twitter and then meeting somebody a year later and like, yeah, we've been Twitter friends forever and interacting on Twitter. And now we know each other in real life. Yeah. I don't think that happens very often. Yeah. Um, So what's the plus? Well, what can we do with technology to plus relationship? Um, and you don't have to have the answer to this. Uh, no, <laughs> but that's I think a great, that's the that's question, question that we need to ask. Yeah, it's a great question. I, the the plus is, I think maybe it has to be technology plus people. We all, we always think that like technology is gonna like that's sort of like the endpoint. Like t- we can use technology to to fix things or to come up with a solution for things, but then it drops off after that. But maybe it's like. You ha- after the technology is there, then you have to add the person back in. So if if you do make a connection on a social network, you've got to have the follow up for that, which is now you. It's, it, I think it makes sense to be like you. Okay, you have a, like a passive relationship online with someone, and maybe you meet them a year from now, and it's cool. But this is like a critical problem. Like there's obviously a, a disconnect between people. So it has to be much more immediate, like just this conscious decision to say, we're going to use technology this way and it's going to have this outcome, which is where we are actively using it to engage immediately with people and have discussions. I wonder what that would look like, what that tech piece would look like. I mean, part of the the difficulty, I think, is that we aren't meeting people different from us, mm-hmm. that the people that we're seeking out have to do with some similarity of ours. Mm-hmm. Like on Twitter, find someone, hashtag design, find yeah. another designer, um, find another conservative, find another yeah. li- liberal. Um, so that's that's part of it. Like maybe instead of the the algorithm that says, okay, you bought this, maybe you'd like this, or you read this article, maybe you should read this article. Perhaps it should be, have you considered this? <laughs> Keep flip the scripts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially with the article bit. <laughs> you just bought this book on ve- veganism. Have you considered all meat all the time? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like how much, what is the responsibility of technology to um, inform people yeah. to all sides of an issue? Uh, that's a good statement. I don't think technology has any responsibility. And I think maybe that's our failing as people in the industry is to think that technology has some volition of its own, like has an inherent sense of responsibility because that's kind of passing the buck on ourselves. We have the ability to, to wield technology, to create the technology but if we say, okay, technology is responsible for this, that the onus is no longer on us to figure out why we're doing it or what we're creating it for or how it might be used. So uh, maybe that's the real core question is like, 
wait a minute, this is, we're making the technology, but we are the ones making it. How do we become responsible for what we're putting out in the world? Mm -hmm. Because the technology is just a thing. But that's hard, you know? That's a big, that when you start thinking of it in that terms, then suddenly you realize my actions are suddenly very heavy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't blame technology anymore. So if I were to create the, the social network of my dreams, it would involve something, something that connected you to people outside of your bubble. And then after a certain point of a certain number of interactions online, it would set up a, a, a meet and you'd all kind of have to be in the same area, but maybe it could be a video chat or something mm -hmm. if you weren't in the same city. Mm -hmm. um, but you would get together and you'd have dinner over a table mm -hmm. <laughs> and you'd actually see each other and interact. So like, like dating, but not for the purpose of dating. Yeah. For the purpose of getting to know other sides. Yeah. If, if we were open enough to be connected with somebody different from us. Mm -hmm. I mean, first that's the first assumption. Yeah. You have to want you to be connect with somebody different yeah. from you. Yeah. And be humble enough to listen and to possibly be wrong about things. Mm -hmm. That's the first assumption. Um, or the first criteria. And then I mean, if the whole world was like that, we wouldn't have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah, that's true. <sighs> But How do we not, foster empathy with technology? The, man, that's such a good idea. I mean, it's such a good question. Like, I, I mean, I, I don't, the answer would be you, I think you have to have this question. You talk about it, you come up with a possible solution and then you try it. I want to come up with a hayride for empathy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, sort of the framework is here. I think it's being talked about, but I, that's the way you, that's just, that's the way you solve any problem. Like when you don't know, where to start when everything is sort of like a an uncharted territory you just put one stake in the ground and then you start walking and if it ends up the direction you're walking is wrong you look back and you go back to that stake that you placed and at least now you have another stake out there where you know that's where you don't want to go back and you go back to where you started and then you walk a different direction until it doesn't work put another stake and slowly you start to map out that problem space and you find, well, here's the places where it doesn't work. Here's the places where it is working. But you just, if you don't have anything to start with, you have to, to just start maybe, you know? Like, okay, we know we just want people to get together. Here's the simplest MVP for that problem. Like here's this app that will, after five interactions online, set up a, a talk a, date. A meet cute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. Dreams. <laughs> Where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Liebert, L-E-E-B-E-R-T. And my website is LeeBrenner.me. That's not what you wanted. No, that is. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking you were looking at me. I was thinking you were saying, no, I told you say Instagram, Twitter, website. Like literally say those three words. <laughs> no, you did it. You, okay. That was perfect. All right. <laughs> Thank you for coming on Designer's Drink. Thank you for having me. This has been awesome. Yeah, it's been great. All right. 
uh, signing off from Austin, Texas. This is Sam and Lee. Bye. Yay. Make sure you check out the podcast notes at designersdrink.com. Thank you for listening. If you know of a designer who I should have on the show or a question or an issue that you want discussed, shoot me an email at sam at designitplease.com. And if you love this podcast, share it with a friend, subscribe to it, rate and review it. Everything is wonderful.